The high level headline summary in terms of how we're doing right now on climate change is nowhere near fast enough. From Deergo Collective, this is Responsibly Different, sharing stories of certified B corporations and our journey of joining them in leveraging business as a force for good. I'm Ben Marine. In this episode, I sat down with Blue Wave Solar's Project Development Managing Director, Chad Nichols, and Blue Wave's Civic Engagement Office Manager, Rachel Clogston. Rachel and Chad share with us about dual-use solar, how they support community solar projects, and how they navigate the B impact assessment. And I learned for the very first time in this conversation about B Lab's audit process. Let's dive on in. So to kick us off, uh, I kind of want to get started with a big question. What, how does somebody uh, join the solar revolution, as you say? Yeah, I think there are a few different ways to join the solar revolution. The community solar piece is sort of the most traditional way to answer that question. Folks that are interested in gaining power for their homes, but maybe can't put solar panels on their own house or their own property themselves, can take part in a community array. And therefore, they're benefiting from the clean energy, but not necessarily directly investing in putting up solar panels on their home or or depending on their various living situations. So I think beyond that, though, there are ways in terms of we work with a lot of farmers and landowners, whether that be the traditional sort of farmer, landowner, municipalities, um, landfills, like all the different places that you could imagine where there's open space and those individuals too can join the revolution by benefiting from hosting an array on on that property. There's a lot of different ways to to join that revolution. Oh, cool. And so I'm curious because I feel like when people think about solar and transitioning to solar, like to your point, everyone thinks, oh gosh, I got to put an array on my house and like all the costs and expenses included in that. To join a community solar program, are there expense, like kind of hidden expenses that that would prevent somebody from doing that? Or is it more cost-effective than people realize? I mean, the, the the sales type answer is it's much more cost-effective than people realize. I think depending on the state, depending on the regulations, depending on the program, there's, there's different sort of paths to entry, if you will. Um, I've worked on community solar projects or been a part of community solar efforts for everywhere from like, the VW, like the Volkswagen sign and then drive where you're literally just like all of a sudden gaining power and you've just committed your energy to this array for X amount of time all the way up to, yeah, basic fees, credit checks. So it really does depend on the program and the the, the uh, area itself. So check your local listings is very much part of that answer in terms of what's available close to you. But there's Lots of advocacy groups, lots of companies that are making sure that that's very easy to digest. And so how is Blue Wave kind of making clean energy a reality in that realm? Yeah, I think, um, again, a couple different ways. Um, the you know Blue Wave was very early uh, in on the community solar in the state of Massachusetts, very much a trailblazer in terms of figuring the state's programs out and making that available to a, a lot of folks um, in order to have community solar available, obviously you need a solar array itself. And so the sort of flip side of that is what we would consider more of the traditional development, permitting, financing, construction of these arrays themselves so that they're interconnected with the grid and producing clean energy, regardless if that's going to a utility or an individual uh, or to a town or a commercial account. Um, And so I think those are sort of the basic ways that Blue Wave, as well as a lot of folks in this space are, you know, creating these opportunities for clean energy folks to benefit, whether it be directly in a community solar type model or indirectly through their utility benefiting from the clean energy. Beyond that, I think Blue Wave does uh, additional work and and again, a, a very much industry leading effort around some of the agrovoltaic work. Agrivoltaic is when solar and agriculture collide. The solar panels are placed in such a way that sunlight is able to reach the ground during part of the day and provide shade during the other part, creating a micro-environment of sorts. 
Let's go back to Chad. Not to go on too far of a tangent, but one of the biggest hurdles we face is placing these arrays. Where do we put them? What do people see? What do they want to look at? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the dual use aspect, which we can definitely get into, is one where there's much more of a win-win situation happening because the land can continue to be farmed and can continue to produce clean energy as well. I'm so curious to hear more about that. So it's, and I saw that actually on your, on your social feed too, about agrivoltaic. And I'd love to hear more about that and how that kind of works and manifests. Yeah. So the, the, the basic thinking is, okay, um, we have goals, you know, pick, pick your community size, right? We have goals as a planet. (laughs) We have needs as a planet. We have goals as a planet. We have goals as a country. We have goals as various states. Um, the high-level headline summary in terms of how we're doing right now on climate change is nowhere near fast enough. Um, I saw a statistic the other day that was if every country hit the goals that they currently have set, we're still not doing enough to, to curb the warmth by 2050. And that's with all the current goals, which a lot of folks would argue <laughs> you know, aren't achievable. So we really need to ramp up the deployment of clean renewable energy in order to curb, you know, the most worst effects of climate change. One of the arguments that comes across very often for folks in this space is, well, you're taking productive agricultural land out of producing food and you're covering it with solar panels for 30 years and therefore that's a net negative. So two things that sort of come to mind in terms of solving that argument. One, our food system is <laughs> broken as well. We have a ton of work to do. So these these parcels, these pieces of land aren't necessarily being, you know, utilized right now from a heavy food production standpoint. They're probably being hay, they're maybe doing a crop or two, but farming in the United States of America has not been a very profitable, you know, cash cow industry for most of the scale of farmers that we work with. So solar quickly becomes a win-win situation where the deployment of the actual solar itself is very low impact. There's no ruining of the earth or the soils below the solar panels. And so what Blue Wave has done, in in addition to other folks in the agrovoltaic space, is said, what if we actually went a bit further and instead of saying this is low impact and we're preserving this land for future use, what if we actually ensured that the land was still producing food, you know, being agriculturally successful while deploying solar. And so there's tweaks that you can do to the design and the thinking of what goes into the array, whether it be lifting it higher up the ground, you know, keeping every third panel out so that sunlight can get in below, um, in which case we're actually furthering both causes. We're putting land into active agricultural production that very likely wasn't before we got there. And we're deploying clean, renewable energy. So it's super cliche to say like the classic win-win. <laughs> it's a very like corporate buzzword, but it really is the classic win-win because these landowners are able to benefit from their land and we're able to have, you know, agriculturally successful fields back into production that weren't otherwise there. That's so cool. So do the farmers actually get like a kickback for having this like solar farm, it sounds like, on their land? Well, any any landowner that, that wants to host an array is going to benefit from like just imagine like your most basic lease type situation. So they're they're getting compensated for hosting an array. What this also does is it adds the ability. If, let's just assume for a minute that that landowner is also a farmer they can then also produce on that land or be paid to produce certain crops or graze cattle on that land where the solar also now exists. So it's not a either or anymore for these landowners. It's a yes and, and they benefit potentially double, but if not at a minimum, yes, they are kind of benefiting from hosting that, that renewable energy resource. But, you know, very likely too, they have, you know, what's necessary or they're farming other parts of the piece of property and now they're able to add this to it. So it really does create some unique situations and some pretty neat crops or or cattle type uh, situations that weren't previously happening in an otherwise empty field. That's so cool. And and I'm curious for, for folks who are listening who maybe are landowners themselves or have friends or family that might fall into that category. 
uh, and they're considering their own land. I mean, what type of conditions are are best for for solar energy? Yeah, um, access to the sun is one. <laughs> we don't love uh, you know being faced with tree clearing. Um, you know, there's a lot of arguments to be made around any sort of tree removal to put in clean renewable energy. I think the net add to our our carbon budget is is still positive and we replace wherever possible. But yeah, open fields uh, as flat as possible works really well. And really, we, we can take it from there. There's a bunch of technical diligence that we do in terms of subsurface conditions, distance to various interconnection, right? We have to connect these to our power grid. And so those are all characteristics that go into deciding if a piece of land is, is a good fit for solar. That's awesome. And, and that's awesome. And, and with that, if someone's like, oh yeah, oh my gosh, I totally, you know, I have a huge open field, tons of sun, sounds great. Where do they go from here? Do they just go to bluewavesolar.com and like, yeah, is there a place to apply online? Is that how that works? Yeah. Yeah. The website definitely has those very clear resources. If you're interested, um, we have teams of folks that are working on, Hey, this piece of property, uh, is a good fit based on some of the characteristics we just talked through and they may get a letter in the mail. And so responding to that or uh, saying this is something that I'm interested in is definitely the first step. So so, so coming back to that agriculture piece, in what ways do, in, in what ways does Blue Wave integrate agriculture into the development projects? Like, so it sounds like you, you find these pieces of land, uh, you know, that you, you set them up in a way that they can be used. But something I heard you say was, like in some cases, it wasn't being used previously for agriculture. So I'm curious, what does that or what does that look like? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I think part of what sets Blue Wave apart is we're working really hard to make it the default part of any of our projects. Um, in a couple of markets that we work in, there are incentives at maybe like the state level for introducing agrivoltaics or p- planting pollinator friendly seeding. You know, various states and markets around the country are saying, okay, this is a this is a double benefit. This helps these projects aesthetically. This helps the environment. Should there be a, a benefit to a developer to incentivize them to do this work? So there is that piece, but we have sort of exported the model, if you will, into some of our other markets where there aren't yet incentives and just make it sort of like a default assumption where we will do the work up front and find what is the local you know grazing scene are there farm is the land being already farmed by someone would they be interested in continuing to do that with solar being hosted there and then yeah working with consultants and farmers and you know seed companies like all the various technical aspects uh to say yeah we want this to be part of this project and then on the flip side finding financial partners who ultimately own these for the very long term uh, once we're done sort of permitting and getting them in the ground, committing to that and saying, yeah, we see value there. We see value in spending the time on that or spending the money on that. And so our default approach is that a project is going to be <laughs> dual use until it's not, um, which does set us apart and has created some pretty unique projects. It also allows us to maybe discuss land options with folks that otherwise would not really ever be approached by solar. We're working on a project right now in Maine that's over an active blueberry farm and will be a blueberry farm when we're done. You know, five years ago, no solar developer would touch that piece of land. And and now here we are learning as we go, figuring out how do we protect blueberries when they're dormant? What season are we in? What are ways to like let them breathe over the weekend so that they survive after we, you know, put this, this array in the ground. So it really creates some unique projects and some really cool stuff. That is really cool. I'm, I'm curious, uh, do y'all have favorite uh, projects that you've seen manifest? One of them, uh, actually, we partner with a sheep grazing organization. Uh, so they actually do our landscaping by getting sheep to go graze underneath. And I am obsessed with that project. It's pretty cool. You can also follow them on Instagram. I think their handle is Solar Sheep. Uh, but it's pretty fun to see the sheep like going in and doing their thing. And it's literally just landscaping that's more sustainable. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. And I would, I would probably reference just off the top of my head, that blueberry project in Maine, it's really exciting and really unique. And like, 
everything from the big picture impact down to like, we need signage to remind anyone that arrives on this site that there's active blueberries underneath where they're walking. Like it's, it's really a neat dynamic that's, that's very non-traditional in the, in the solar space. That's so cool. That is really cool. Um, can you all talk about some of the work that you do with communities? In the communities that we develop in, in general, we always try to prioritize using local vendors and just making sure that we are educating the community there about what's going to be happening. I haven't been to a town meeting, but I've heard some very great stories come out of there of the different questions people ask. Um, but people are really passionate about what's going on in the place that they live. And, you know, being able to be in those, you know, community town meetings and being able to get that face time with people and try our best to you know, make them confident that we're a trustworthy developer, we're trying to do what's best for the planet and the community we're locally working in, which ties back into our B Corp certification, which we'll touch upon later. But just making sure we're doing all that we can to make sure we're leaving, you know, a project there and people are happy that it's there, happy that they can connect with us if they have questions or just make sure that, you know, we aren't just coming in, ripping things up and you know, making people wish that solar wasn't a thing. That is a huge, can be a huge obstacle in some of the communities that we go and set up projects in is if they had a bad experience with a developer in the past, you know, it just makes it that much harder of a fight to cut through some red tape and, you know, really do what we want to do and help the people that we want to help. I, I would just add, I think there are sort of two buckets of community, if you will. You know, Rachel touched upon both, but in terms of like the way that, that, that I think about it is there are the communities that we have to be successful in, in terms of being good neighbors, permitting projects. Um, and so there are ways that we can engage locally there, whether that be, you know, paying attention to um, the history of a piece of land or, you know, uh, approaching town meetings before like we absolutely have to and doing much more of like an introduction, right? Like simple things that you would think happen. But a lot of times, to, to Rachel's point, there are developers that, you know, kind of give all developers a bad name. And so being on the positive side of that relationship piece, and there is the other sort of definition of community in terms of like where we are as a company. Um, and I know Rachel's been part of a lot of that work, whether it be community, you know, supporting community events, volunteering, um, in sort of the virtual times, I know we've support some scholarships and some like book release, I, you know, events, like getting creative around ways that we can continue to be like a good community member as a company as well. So there's a, sort of those two sides of that uh, coin. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways that we also try to get involved as far as like a volunteering, charitable giving standpoint. You know, each team has goals to do a volunteering event together. The company has you know, goals to do company-wide volunteering events. So a lot of times they'll do like the Greater Boston Food Bank all together or um, people have a lot of flexibility in where they choose to spend their volunteering time with their team. So some people do like a beach cleanup in Winthrop or somebody's cousin might have like a really amazing nonprofit that we only heard of through that, you know, employee. And if their team supports it, they can donate their portion to that organization. Touching back on some of the work that we do in communities with land development, um, we've recently got it in our development goals to make sure we do right by the lands that we're working on in, in that vein, you know, acknowledging what native lands we are developing on, seeing if we can connect with those communities and make sure that, you know, they have a say as well in how we're developing the land. You know, it's, we're trying to, you know, do a lot of different things, you know, stay true to our B Corp roots, pay, you know, pay pave the way forward for other developers um, to kind of look at us as an example, hopefully, and, you know, just make sure that if we're you know, spearheading some dual-use projects in these new areas that haven't had solar, you know, in there before, how can we make it a template that includes, okay, let's make it dual-use because it's amazing. Let's make sure we are um, acknowledging and working alongside the people who are already here and who have been here for thousands of years as well. Um, you know, really just trying to be that company that looks at everything as a whole and doesn't just want to, you know, look at the bottom line. You know, there's multiple bottom lines that we all have to be concerned about, especially now with climate change and social justice issues and 
all the interconnections that those things have with each other. That's amazing. That's awesome. And I can't wait to like dig even deeper into that when we when we move into B Corp land here. So I'm curious to the speaking to that end, how are communities affected by a shift to solar power? Because it sounds like there have been, you know, you know, to your point, developers that maybe haven't been as sensitive to the impact on on communities and maybe have, have created a bad name for for other um, developers. What what are what are what are some of the reservation that you sometimes face from folks in the community? Yeah, I think I think in general, there's sort of a gap in understanding in terms of what we're what we're actually trying to do and what it may feel like we're trying to do at first glance, if that makes sense. So a project's introduced, you know, individuals don't know like are there moving parts? Like are these like massive concrete foundations? Like all these things that aren't part of our project uh, either are like a word of mouth or something that we can do a better job of saying, look, this is actually super low impact to the piece of property. We're literally driving a post in the ground without much underground infrastructure at all. There could be moving pieces if it's sort of one of, you know, what we would call a tracking system that actually moves with the sun. But by and large, it's not, you know, a ton of moving components, very low, if any sound. And, you know, visually unobstructive from like, you know, most points. And so the alternative that we bring up a lot in terms of what landowners could be doing with a piece of property is, you know, putting in a housing development or a Walmart. And and so the, the, the ability for the land to remain productive, to be, um, you know, financially positive for the landowners themselves, and then say, look, here's what we're doing. This is a low impact activity. Um, and it's going to be generating power for years to come with maybe one or two visits a year from technicians to check on things like we're not adding traffic. We're not adding, you know, obviously any type of pollution. There's no lighting. And so it really becomes like, OK, here's here's what we're doing and here's what this actually looks like. So we we do a lot of work in with renderings or photos of other projects um, and, and it just really helps people go from that sort of initial reaction that we would likely all have receiving, you know, a, a notice in the mail or, you know, going to a town meeting to hear about something for the first time and saying, you know, going through all the Q&A, answering all the questions and saying, no, here's what this is, here's what this isn't, uh, and working through it that way. And I think most times in my experience, having gone through, you know, very positive town meetings, but also, you know, long late night type, you know, packed rooms with lots of Q&A. It's, it's about sort of that spending time with folks answering those questions. And it really becomes like a successful, I, I hear in, in, in my career previous to Blue Wave, like we're really, we're really strong supporters of solar, but not just not this solar. And so when you start connecting dots for folks and saying, actually, this solar is part of the big solar that we need to be doing everywhere. And here's why this piece of property is really great for it. And here's the benefit to your neighbor, who's the landowner. It really starts to kind of, you know, turn the tide, if you will. And, and folks usually get there. That's really cool. And, and and I imagine, too, I feel like that's also just testament to the extra mile that you all are going and working with communities, because I feel like it would be really easier for that landowner to just say, nope, we're doing this. I don't care what the community thinks. And then, but that is part of what could leave a bad taste in someone's mouth to, to your point, Rachel. Um, that's great. Uh, how do you set up a, a solar? I, I feel like you touched on this a little bit, but how do you set up the solar farm in a way that doesn't compromise the local habitat? Yeah. So, so part of our process, and this is a mixture of, you know, what we would consider like permitting requirements, depending on the different jurisdictions we work in, but also just sort of risk mitigation, identifying a, a piece of property as being a good fit. It would, it would definitely go in that bucket. Um, but yeah, there's a huge environmental piece to our work. And a lot of people don't realize this in terms of we cover everything from local species to habitats to wetlands and streams and different types of soil classifications on the piece of land. And so really from day one, we're constantly looking at all of these things and engaging with consultants um, to review these types of things. And that's both above ground and below ground. And so 
again, between the permitting sort of <laughs> rigor, as well as our ensuring that we have something at the end of the day that we can successfully build and successfully um, place into service with a, a long-term owner, you know, we want to make sure there isn't anything that would be an issue down the road. And so, yeah, the items that I listed through are all part of, you know, good development, understanding the piece of land you're working with. And the layout, if you will, of the array itself ebbs and flows over time based on the results of those various studies or those various, you know, uh, research. And so we may, we may start with a piece of land, pull it up on Google Earth and say, okay, cool, we can fit this type of project. Now let's go see what what are the height of the actual trees? What types of trees uh, are there? You know, wetlands, streams, all the things that I listed. And so we may end up, up with something shaped very different from when we started. We're obviously continuing to prioritize maximizing the land because that benefits both the amount of power going to the grid as well as the landowner themselves. Um, but yeah, it's it's about working through those items designing a project, designing a solar array that fits within the, the thresholds or the boundaries set forth by the environmental constraints. Yeah, it's also some of like the really small nitty-gritty details too will be what kind of ground cover are you going to end up using? Is it pollinator friendly? Is it native? Um, if you have to put fencing around a project, do you raise it up a little bit so you can let, you know, little meadow creatures go through easily instead of getting locked out of where they may have used to, you know, be? Um, there are a, a ton of different ways that you can, you know, add really great details to a project to make sure that it's taking the environment into account and making sure it's not being, you know, too intrusive on, you know, what used to be there. That's so cool. I just picture little like critters. <laughs> Yeah. Such a great, cute, happy picture in my head right now. Um. <laughs> if you've ever uh, been to a solar farm, I went to the one, I think it's in uh, Westport. I've never seen so many butterflies in my life. <laughs> you just you walk in between the panels and it's it's just beautiful. It's like surprisingly peaceful. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That is so cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about B Corp certification. I, I'm curious, how was that process as a whole? Yeah, as a whole. So B Corp, uh, Blue Wave became a B Corp in 2017, and that was before I started at the company. Um, but you have to recertify every three years. So 2020 came around, and I led that effort. And we were one of the lucky companies who were recertifying that year who got selected to go through a B Corp audit as well. Um, so about 10% of companies who are recertifying get selected for that. And it just makes the whole process a lot more intense, uh, a lot longer. And obviously, you have to provide all the documentation to support all of your answers, which makes sense, all the accountability and whatnot that you need. But it was a really awesome experience for me, too. This was my first time really diving into the B Corp world. I had kind of unofficially been dubbed the B Corp person at Blue Wave, uh, and that really, I think, solidified it. And now I've got Chad, too, who is my partner in crime, or partner in being a Good company. Good crime. B Corp. Cor Good crime. B, B crime. <laughs> <Yeah>. B crime. <laughs> Let's go with that. We're gonna have to work. We're gonna have to workshop that a little. Definitely, but uh, but yeah, but you know, it was a super long process that took you know several months for us to go through, um, and then we had to put together a whole B Corp task force and divide the different sections into different teams so they could all go through get the answers. Um, find the documentation and, you know, hope that it would actually like support the answers. Sometimes the answers or the questions can have like different interpretations almost. And so it's almost a question by question basis for some of them that gets reviewed by the reps that we were working with from B-Lab uh, to see, okay, does this actually qualify? Is this what we're asking for uh, stuff in order to be able to actually get the points in the assessment? Oh my gosh, that's the first time I've ever heard of an audit. And that's so like, that's so cool. It makes so much sense that they would do that, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's just that like extra layer of accountability. Yeah. Um, and wow, so every single question you had to have documentation for. Pretty much. So when the audit itself happens, they select different questions. So it's not the entire assessment, but Pro tip, if you want to be smart about it and if you're going to be going through an audit, just get the documentation as you go because otherwise you're just going to have to go back and get it again and that already in itself creates more work. So basically, if you're going to ever 
go through an audit like that or if you're filling out the assessment, it makes it so much easier to just start compiling all of the documentation you would need to present uh, from the get-go. We did not do that. So learn from my experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. Um, and, and with that audit, do they? how much time do they give you to, to gather everything up like from the time that they tell you, hey, by the way, you're going to be audited? Um, what was it? So this is a little while ago now, but we had a, a pretty significant amount of time. I mean, you know, when your recertification date is coming up. So internally, we wanted to give ourselves like three to six months to make sure we were going to be prepared for that deadline. But once you kind of start the process, it can be extended a little bit. They give you a timeline. Um, ours ended up being a little bit longer than the timeline they provided for us to get everything done, which is why it ended up being more of like a six-month-long process. But yeah, it can be pretty extensive, depend also depending on how big your company might be, because um, the assessment, I think, changes depending on the size of your company. It might have certain questions for, you know, people who are like 50 people and under, um, or if you're upgrading to like a company that's, you know, in the 250 range. They might have some additional questions in the different sections. So, but long story short, give yourself a ton of time if you ever have to go through that process and don't do it all yourself. I was just going to say, I think to echo what has been brought up on previous episodes, <laughs> form a team. <laughs> uh, I'm fortunate that this is my second B Corp that I'm a part of. And my previous organization, also in the solar space, went through an audit a few years back. And I was on the interview end, uh, so not as much behind the scenes of the audit work, but was one of the people selected to interview. And for me, it was actually such a rewarding experience because for the first time I was seeing sort of like, you know, you spend a lot of time looking at the claims of a B Corp or why would a company want to become a B Corp? And then it's sort of like, oh, okay, they, you know, they got this certification, but like what, you don't really know what's behind that until you go through either certification or an audit or recertification. And so I, I'll never forget sitting there answering the questions from B Lab and saying, okay, these people really care about the claims that this company are, are making. Like, this isn't just like, go online, put in a credit card, check some boxes and you get your logo on the website for another two years. Like it's a legitimate process and it it can be intense. And I think, yeah, I was just going to add echoing what, what I know has been said before, but form a committee, form a team, you know, make it easier. Don't, don't put it on one person's lap and hope that it just works out. That's real. Yeah. And, and, and we have found having like a shared folder where everything lives is also hugely helpful. Um, for sure. Oh, I'm curious, what was the most kind of challenging part about the B Corp cert? Like in, in your case, like the recertification process? Yeah. For the recertification process, I'd say honestly, it was ha getting the documentation for things that were like, oh yeah, we totally do this. Do we have anything written down that proves that we actually do this? Uh, so making sure that we we're backing up what, you know, we might be doing as far as like what's in the handbook, you know, or what sort of wellness activities do we provide to our employees? Um, or what is our impact on the community and how do we, you know, make sure we're being held accountable? Some of these things that your company might just inherently do, depending on, you know, what your mission or values are, or, you know, who's, you know, at the head of the ship of your company. You might just do it, but you might not actually have it in writing and be surprised that, that by the fact that you don't. Um, so kind of making sure that we had this stuff in writing was really, you know, sometimes the biggest challenge. If you're looking for it and you can't find it and it's this B Corp task force that maybe somebody who is, you know, taking control of this section doesn't have the experience or the right background within the company be like, oh, I know, like, Linda would know this, or maybe like Kavita would know that. Um, a lot of it was kind of doing detective work to find those things. And then if it didn't actually exist, uh, taking the time to make sure it came into fruition so that we could still check that box on the assessment and then continue to you know, be living up to that standard of that question now that we know we have it written down somewhere. Um, but yeah, just the surprise of you know, sometimes not having something that you're like, well, we totally do this. How is it? How does it not technically exist yet? That's real. I'm I'm curious, what has been kind of the most rewarding part of of kind of leading the charge through that recertification? 
Yeah, I think just the education on it and figuring out like, okay, B Corp stands for being a good company, but what does that really entail? You know, echoing what Chad was saying, you know, getting that behind, getting the behind the scenes look at what it really means. Um, I had taken a class in college too that was talking about social entrepreneurship and we kind of glossed over B Corp. So that was a small reason of why I wanted to join Blue Wave because it was a, it wasn't as big of an awareness that I had of like what a B Corp is. And now that I know, I'm like, oh my God, I'm never going to not work for a B Corp. Like it's really cool to know what actually goes into the assessment and all the in-depth questions that they ask. I mean, they go over like five different sections, which is like super in-depth and learning that different companies might be gaining points in different areas too. You know, if you're a really amazing environmental company, that might, that might be where you gain all of your points in the assessment. Um, and if there's a section that you're like, well, this doesn't really apply to us, you know, it doesn't cut you off from being a B Corp. Um, like, I'm not sure what example would have a company that doesn't really deal with customers, but, you know, if you don't have a lot of points you can gain because you don't have a lot of interaction with a specific group of customers, you know, you can gain it back and, you know, how transparent you are with your employees and your civic engagement efforts or your governance structure. Um, a lot of different things, you know, learning all the ins and outs of the assessment for sure. Speaking of appreciating and being big fans of B Corps, I know the I've had the, the honor of working with both of you on the build committee. Do you both just want to touch briefly on, on the on the BLD and kind of what that is and, and how you got involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a big part of our lives right now. So very, very uh, pointed question. Um so the, the, the BLD or the BUILD, the B Corp Leadership Development, is a regional effort set up by B Labs to help B Corps connect with other B Corps in their region. Um, in the past, it's been a single day in-person conference, and it's really been a rewarding chance to share best practices, network, understand, you know, who's working on what, and yeah, I've been actually either in attendance or on a committee for I think all of the New England builds. I always hesitate because it feels like such a senior claim, but I think I have been at them all and really experienced them sort of grow over time. And I know there's the same things happening in various reason, regions around the U.S. Um, we are all on the committee for the New England build, which is coming up in the middle of June. And due to um, the pandemic nature of the world right now. We're doing a three half day virtual event and we've got an amazing lineup of speakers and topics and panelists put together and really just working to spread the word. And it's just such a rewarding experience each year to realize you're part of this community and realize how great the community is in your own, in your own region, much less across the United States, Canada and the world. And so yeah, they're one of my favorite things year over year, and I've been happy to either, like I said, be on the committee or be involved some way for a few years now. They're they're really a fantastic actual tangible experience or virtual tangible experience to say, look, this is this is a, a, a group of people that align with my thinking, my organization's thinking, and I can actually take a lot away from this day and go back and, and improve my own organization. Yeah, it's going to be a really amazing conference. I'm super excited for it. So I know that's biased because I'm one of the planners, but I kind of jumped on to the BLD train. Uh, well, what was it, over a year ago now that we started this committee? Since we ended up having to postpone due to a certain pandemic. Um, but I had been on an email chain, I think, with Kelsa, who is one of the members of the B Local Boston board. And she mentioned, hey, do you want to become the marketing chair? I said, do you, do you trust me? And she was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, okay, I will do my best. Uh, so that's how, kind of how I came to be on the board. But I had gone to the 2018 BLD, uh, and it was amazing. It was awesome to come together with a group of people. And I had actually gone to the conference solo. And so to do that can be intimidating sometimes. Uh, everybody was super nice. And all of the different breakout rooms were like wonderfully facilitated by the people who were, you know, leading the charge there. Um, but it's just a really solid community and group of individuals that, you know, if you aren't a B Corp too, or if you aren't part of that community and you just want to meet these people and get more involved in some way, shape or form, uh, it's a really great event to attend. 
and we're really excited for it to be virtual this year. And I think the reach will be able to be a lot farther than what it would normally be, you know, having a location at, you know, a, a place in New Hampshire or somewhere in New England that, you know, not everybody's centrally located at. But it's going to be really cool. I, I'm Speaking of COVID and, and all of the things, how has COVID impacted Blue Wave? Yeah, COVID definitely just flipped us to 180. Uh it was crazy. One weekend, we were on an unofficial Blue Wave skiing weekend trip all together. And then I think that upcoming week, I had actually worked from home on a Thursday when the email went out that, hey, everybody who's working from the office today, when you leave, uh, take all your stuff that you need to work because we're not going to come back into the office indefinitely. So that was kind of crazy for how fast everything ended up transitioning. But Blue is still fully remote. Um, we have a very small office and a WeWork space where some of our accounting folks jump in to cut checks and do our, you know, company payroll. But aside from that, we've all been remote. Uh, it's been kind of crazy, but the transition was surprisingly easy from a technology standpoint. You know, everybody was able to take their laptops and be connected through our shared drives and our emails and you know, the improving, ever-improving Teams apps and all that. But I think culture-wise, we miss each other a lot. And I'm, I'm curious, did COVID impact uh, the solar farms in any way or the implementation of, of new solar projects? Yeah, I think just on the industry side, um, I wasn't with Blue Wave at the start of the pandemic, but, uh, you know, from a from a... Solar industry standpoint, there was a pause, of course. I think if, if folks recall, anything that had anything to do with the financial world was sort of uncertain for a period of time there. And, you know, these projects are, are long-term investments for various groups. And so there was a pause. It was sort of a cautious pause. But I think quickly the renewable energy industry, solar in particular, adapted and you know, realized that, yeah, there's this remote work environment, but, you know, the work that we're doing is generally outside in terms of any sort of deployment. Um, and so there was a, a small blip, if any, big picture in terms of renewable energy deployment. The concerns, again, were around sort of the financial piece, what investments make sense. We are still dealing with impacts from supply chain uh, from a supply chain standpoint, in terms of cost of goods, cost of materials, availability of solar panels, the price of steel, all of those current sort of red flags can be traced back to uncertain market conditions, uh, you know, different factories around the world closing. Um, and so we're, we're definitely still feeling the impacts, but I think big picture the markets and the world realize this is a priority. This is something we have to do more of, continue to do more of. Our world is a fragile place. We need to take care of it and actually do what we can. And renewable energy deployment is a big part of that. And so I think there was, as as so many of us experienced throughout this pandemic, there was this sort of like back to basics and like, no, we absolutely need to do more of this to avoid, you know, further pitfalls of, of society, not to be too, too doom and gloom, but and so I think, you know, renewable energy had already been, you know, given a really strong financial case. These are sound, solid investments that that offer real returns. And I think in a way, the pandemic really brought to light just how intelligent, you know, investing in one of these projects really is. And so, yeah, there was definitely a pause and, and, a, and, a, and a brief period of what's going on, as there was with almost any industry. But I think solar in particular has been lucky that... A lot of the development work can be done remote and a lot of the deployment work is outside. And so we, we really came through shining and, and hope to only have year after year improvements as we saw. How do you think we can work to make solar energy more ubiquitous around the world? Um, Policy. Yeah, right. <laughs> Policy. Getting, uh, I think educating the public is going to be a big one. Um I know that can be a big daunting task of, you know, trying to stay involved in politics and everything like that and what policies are going to be supportive of green energy. But I'd say that's probably the biggest barrier in any market is, okay, what red tape can we cut through? What can we do to make it easier for solar or other, you know, 
green infrastructure to be put in place. Yeah, policy uh, absolutely around the world. I think in the U.S. in particular, federal policy is a big part of that answer. Um, we spend an undefined amount of time and resources as an organization navigating state by state rules, state by state regulations, utility by utility, navigation of who can we work with, who can we not, what are these various costs. And so we've seen it in, in, in other countries around the world, but a federal level policy, support of this infrastructure, a clear case to be made that this should be done, it should be done well, and it should be done streamlined would would just exponentially increase uh, our ability to 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 speed up the deployment of this energy, which we need so drastically. So I think policy is a huge part. And I also think, you know, not to bring it back too close to the top of the conversation, but good development. A lot of these sort of win-win solutions are a big part of that. And so if we can point to examples where we're deploying solar energy, not at the cost of anything else, and or even preserving or pushing further other things, such as agricultural uses of a piece of land, it really becomes hard to say no, <laughs> like um, what's left. And so, yeah, we have to find unique ways to, to implement and be good partners and good stewards of the land. And it can really, really turn the tide and, and, and become the clean energy source that we need it to be, along with all the other renewable energies as well. But um, solar in particular has... Uh, a lot of opportunity to to be done and be done well. And I think those items will just help big time. So call your local representatives. Let them know you approve of solar. <laughs> right. If you want to take one small action item away from here. Absolutely. That's amazing. That's awesome. Uh, so what's next for Blue Wave? Yeah, I think so two sort of Big things sort of happening at Blue Wave. I think one thing we didn't touch a lot on is the storage piece. Battery storage is a huge part of this solution. It's a huge part of ensuring that renewable energy can be that 365, 24-7 power option. And so storage is a big part of Blue Wave. We have a dedicated group focused on storage-only deployment where we're able to connect with either solar projects or the grid itself to allow for further renewable energy. And it really smooths that curve and that argument, which is, well, we can't do only solar because what about when the sun doesn't shine? Or we can't only do wind because what about when the wind doesn't blow? Battery becomes that, that equalizer and allows us to store up the energy when it's produced and use it when we need it most. And between the financial case, the lower, the lower continued lower cost of these projects paired with something like battery storage, there's really no excuse. Um, I think other things in addition to the dual-use agrovoltaic space, I think floating solar is another thing that's coming that Blue Wave's working on where we're able to make use of different bodies of water, whether it be man-made ponds or you can think about all the various, you know, storage <laughs> ponds of uh, you know, various towns or municipalities, canals, waterways, like there's a huge opportunity there and a dual benefit for, you know, folks in that sector that understand why evaporation is a problem. And so let's put something over this that produces additional power and minimizes the impact to that body of water. So I think those are two big things we're seeing in the industry that we want to make sure we're leading in as well. Yeah. Dual use opportunities are pretty much endless. I mean, and you look at the different studies of what's happening with agrivoltaics too, you'll see water retention percentages increase significantly and, you know, the plants underneath can sometimes even thrive more than if they didn't have the panels there. I went to do a site visit with Drew, which is our sustainability guru. Uh, and he, I have, I took this picture of him laying down between the shaded area of the grass and the non-shaded area. And it, like one side was just so plush. It was, we were making a joke about taking a nap in the fields. Um, but you could just see the significant difference even just in the grasses that were growing there of how well one was thriving with the partial shade and how the other was just like the kind you don't really want to step on when you're barefoot in the summer. That is so cool. That is really, really cool. Any final thoughts you all want to leave or anything that you want to touch on that maybe we haven't yet? Yeah, uh, I would say anybody who wants to learn more about you know the B Corp community, Definitely join us at the BLD this June. I'm excited to see everybody there. Yeah, I 
I'd say to any organization considering certification, I think it's great what you're doing in terms of, you know, podcasting your way through this journey. The, the, the unique thing about B Corp certification, what I love most about it is that it helps all different organizations in all different industries, and there's all different ways to benefit. Um, we don't all have products on shelves where we would maybe benefit from a B Corp logo, uh, comparing ourselves to a product without one. I've seen unbelievable policy changes internal to an organization that they make commitments through their B Corp. There's a community aspect. And yeah, it's just such a great mix of planet and profit. And it really is, as we talked about, you know, holds organizations accountable. And I would just say that for anyone on the fence, any company that's considering this and not 100% sure if it's for them, I guarantee you there is something that your organization will benefit from from doing this. It may not be in your face. It may not be on your next product tomorrow. You may not even have a product. You may be a small consulting firm. You will benefit. It will improve your organization and you'll do better for it. So it's really, really a wonderful community. And I encourage every company to look into it. Thank you so much for tuning in and to learn more about Blue Wave Solar and for additional information, you can visit the show notes at responsiblydifferent.com. As we mentioned in this episode, the New England BLD is coming up next week. It will be fully virtual next Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from noon to 5 p.m. And we are a proud sponsor of this event. You can learn more at bldnewengland.org or follow the link in our show notes. Next time on Responsibly Different, we talk to the founder of Conscious Clothing Company, Another Tomorrow. I'm Vanessa Barboni-Halleck, and I'm the founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow. Where this is a bi-weekly podcast, I also wanted to let you all know about some really important work that Another Tomorrow is doing with current legislation that could really use your support right now. Here's Vanessa to share more about that. So SB 62 is the bill that's currently going through the legislature in California. That's a really big one. Um, So that's going to be coming up for a final vote probably later this month. So really suggest people um, look for that one. The uh, issue around old growth forests in British Columbia is a very live issue in Canada right now. Um, And there's a huge amount of pressure on the government to actually follow their own recommendations (laughs) and ban the logging of these old growth forests. So that's happening right now. And actually, even chlorpyrifos, there was just a court ruling that the EPA has to ban it for all food uses, I think in the next 60 days, which doesn't cover cotton. But all of these are super live issues. And, you know, the more people put their voices behind them, um, the more likely we're going to see, you know, really tangible, lasting change. Till next time, be responsibly different. This is a production of Deergo Collective, music composed by our own Kevin Oates. You can follow us on social media at Deergo Collective or visit our corner of the internet at deergocollective.com.